0: Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. Today, we're lucky enough to be speaking with Jane Stewart, author of Medlars, Growing and Cooking. If you've never heard of Medlar, you're not alone. This unusual fruit is perhaps best known for its many vulgar nicknames. And although it was once a popular tree crop in Europe, in modern times, it has become rather obscure even amongst plant nerds like us. Tune in today to learn all about the Medlar's fascinating history, cultivation and harvest tips, and some of Jane's favorite Medlar recipes, as well as much more. Stick with us. Jane Stewart, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Why don't we start off with your personal background and how you became interested in Medlar and other fruit trees?
1: Okay, Michael, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to join you today. I'm really looking forward to this. So thank you for inviting me and by extension to be part of your lovely podcast world. So my background is uh, an odd one. I'm a Londoner who has internally immigrated to uh, a county, which is what we call them here, called Norfolk, which is in the fat part of the southern half of England. Prior to moving here I worked in the City of London in the financial markets and then in 2004 I retrained and set up my own business working as an executive leadership coach. So how does somebody with that background end up being interested in Medlar, Mespolis Germanica? Well it's a story of um, health and regeneration. Having moved to Norfolk I was lucky enough in 2015, aged 55, to be diagnosed with a stage one cancer, and I was cured of it. This is really a big trigger for change in my life. The recovery process was quite quick physically, but slightly slower mentally, and I found salvation in the garden. It was this time of year, so we're talking January, February, March, And also in raiding my deep freeze for stashed uh, frozen fruit, which I wanted to experimentally turn into preserves. I literally come from a long line of jam buyers rather than jam makers. I'm the first in my family on either side to take an interest in putting things into jars. But what I found, and we did have some medlar trees that we had brought with us when we moved here in 2012. What I found was that the medlar started to more than just intrigue me. There is a family link here. I should say that my husband, David, grew up in Suffolk. His gran had access to a medlar tree and she used to harvest the fruit every autumn and make medlar jelly that she used to give to her husband, David's granddad every day when he came in off the fields he was a farm laborer. So there was a family interest in the medlar tree in David's family and when his grandparents died uh, David's dad bought him a medlar tree uh, which he planted in his garden in Cambridgeshire which is where he then lived and when I met David in 2008 I met the medlar tree and stood there absolutely astonished by the beauty and the ugliness all rolled into one of this medlar tree. Beautiful because it was statuesque and had a beautiful canopy that seemed to reach out and reach out sort of above our heads in a way that wanted to enfold us. Um, and ugly because I'd never seen a fruit quite like it. It was late October. The fruit was still on the tree. And I can remember asking David what on earth this was. And he said, oh, it's a medlar." I then said, well, what's a meddler? Remember, I'm a Londoner who knows nothing at all about anything. So that's when my interest in a very, very, very tiny way was first piqued. I discovered also that there was no book on the meddler, which was very frustrating. And there was remarkably little on the Internet at that particular time. As to how I became personally interested with a capital I in the meddler, Uh, which I would now class myself as being, it really did come about as a consequence of this illness that I had in 2015. It became quite clear to me quite quickly that maybe my life as a coach, going in and out of businesses, helping leaders go through change, maybe that chapter uh, needed to close off and I needed to make myself open to some new possibilities, to go through a transition. And in a very literal sense, I put additional roots here in Norfolk because we started to add to our 10 medlar trees at the end of that year. And by 2019, we had 115 medlar trees. And by 2020, those medlar trees had been recognised as national collection. So I think it's fair to say that what felt like a flirtation became something really quite serious in a relatively short space of time. My little business, Eastgate Larder, which is the only specialist meddler business in the UK, was registered as a business right at the end of 2015. And by the end of the following year, 2016, I had my first proper harvest, a tiny harvest from our relatively few medlar trees that we would got here at Eastgate but through um, the miracle of Facebook as a networking mechanism and one or two personal introductions I was able to access enough fruit to start building up some wholesale customer relationships in 2017. So yeah I would summarise this by just saying you know this is a story of uh, recovery, regeneration and also of putting down roots, not just in an emotional way, but in a very literal way. It felt terribly important to me to find a meaningful way of saying thank you to the place that I had been lucky enough to move to. Because if I hadn't moved here, the chances of my cancer having been discovered at a very, very treatable stage were almost zero. And that's what I'm deeply grateful for. And I feel I've got, you know, a second chance chance at life. And everything I do in and around the business and the orchard is very much with the revival of the medlar in mind.
0: So, Jane, could we describe exactly what the medlar tree is, what it looks like, what the fruits look like? Just do a sort of basics on the medlar tree.
1: These days, mostly medlars as a fruit, will grow on a tree which has been grafted onto some kind of rootstock. And depending on the size of rootstock, or the the nature of the rootstock rather, whether it's hawthorn, which will produce, actually can produce over time quite a big tree, but quite often produces something that we call a half-standard, which might stand about 12 to 15 feet high. You will have a tree that might be multi-stem or half-standard. You know, you can take your pick and encourage the tree to look the way that you would like it. One of the joyous things about these deciduous trees, which are incidentally cousins of apples, pears and quinces, is that they are lovely to look at for about nine months of the year. And in fact, today, when I was out in my orchard, I noticed the first green torpedo shaped leaf buds uh, really becoming quite significant. I found several that are about already half an inch long and the trees only finally lost their leaves about eight weeks ago, which is quite something. So I would imagine we will have leaf action of a visible sort, visible enough to attract the pigeons by the first or second week of March. So we've got a deciduous tree that can produce an arching canopy, typically that will be wider than it is tall. And these have the potential to live for a very, very long time. Apples become elderly at about 100. Medlars can easily outlive an apple by a factor of two or three. I know a couple of trees in Norfolk that are um, around 200 years old. And it's reputed that the oldest medlar tree uh, recorded in Britain, down in Wiltshire, was planted in 1632. There's not an awful lot to look at now, but it is still there. It's called the George Herbert Medler, and I do talk about it in the book. So we have this beautiful tree, a palm fruit, producing as a fruit a crop that is harvested sometime between the end of October and the middle of December, just depending on what the weather's doing. Some cultivars are definitely much later than others. I'm thinking particularly of the Westerfeld, which typically doesn't come off the trees until the back. End of November. The Iranian, which is one of my favourites, tends to be a very early one that tends to be ready to pick, actually to eat fresh off the tree um, in about the first week of November. So as a fruit, when they're rock hard on the trees, ready to be picked, because you've got to ripen them off the tree, they tend to be anything between one and two inches across in diameter unless you're looking at maybe the Russian, the large Russian, which can be up to three inches across, and the large Dutch, which might be more like sort of two and a half inches across. They do have quite distinct features. The the Dutch will have quite an open calyx, whereas the large Russian will have a slightly more closed one, but they're both fairly flat looking. The royal, which was introduced here in the 19th century by Thomas Rivers, That's a sort of round, quite a rounded medlar, about an inch and a half in diameter, with quite a closed calyx. But the variety or the cultivar that is most widely found in the UK, the Nottingham, always reminds me of a UFO. They tend to be quite flat looking, maybe one and a half to two inches across, but with a very, very open and very flat calyx. And my favourite as a table fruit, the Iranian, looks more like a sort of Drop pearl earring, almost sort of egg shaped, not quite that big, maybe one and a half inches in the larger examples, top to bottom, and again with quite a closed calyx. So there are some quite distinct differences among the cultivars once you start to notice what those are. And this sort of golden ish, brownish, rough skin on the hard but fully grown fruit will darken and darken as the bletting process the ripening process takes place and at the same time the creamy colored flesh which is tannic and impenetrable becomes soft sweet and dark this is probably one of the reasons why the medlar has fallen out of fashion visually its brownness is a bit of a visual challenge to humans who are used to these days having bright vibrantly colored fruit available all year round. So the meddler really does need a little bit of help and encouragement and support from people like me and hopefully you the listeners to reappraise it and to reconsider it.
0: Here in the U.S. you mentioned the Nottingham uh, cultivar Mm -hmm. but here, Breda Giant seems to be the most available yes. cultivar.
1: Yeah, it is. And I noticed that there's another one. What the, what the cultivar that's been planted at the National Arboretum in DC is a cultivar called Sultan. Now, I don't know whether that is a hybrid of the Iranian medlar. I haven't actually physically seen a Sultan, but I have seen the Breda Giant up close. They have. That's what they have at um, Scott Farm in Vermont. And I think it's the cultivar that Alison said they'd got at the um Hortus Gardens in the Hudson Valley. But it is, I mean, if I were to put a breda giant against a Nottingham, I don't think there would be an awful lot to lot of difference to identify. And this is <laughs> this is one of the really tiresome features of the meddler world. I have to be really upfront with everybody about this. The cultivars that are distinctive to look at are very distinctive. So the Iranian is distinctive. I think the Nottingham is distinctive. The Royal is distinctive. The large Dutch, the the large Russian. But then the Westerfeld and the Macrocarpa and the Flanders giant and the common Dutch, to my mind, all look very much of a muchness, a great English expression. But to really get under the skin, of the differences, I think some quite costly DNA work would need to be done. And that would require quite a lot of investment and would certainly be beyond the reach of pretty well most of us. And I think because of the economic insignificance of the meddler, I mean, let's be blunt about it, it is a rare fruit. It's not grown commercially here in the UK, other than by me. Um, and a jam maker that most Americans will have heard of, the Wilkins family of Tiptree in Essex. Um, if anybody ever goes to a hotel for a breakfast, they might see these very distinctive little tiny jars of British strawberry jam or marmalade made by the Wilkin family. They've got medlar trees growing in there on their farm down in Essex. But this is very much a sort of minority. It's a minority interest, and probably meddler awareness in the uk oh, it might now be somewhere between 10 and 12 percent of the population a survey was done in 2017 it was probably standing at about seven or eight percent and i'm talking awareness in terms of people knowing what they look like or maybe having eaten them come total contrast to how things looked about 100 years ago when a meddler did play quite an important part in the winter diet
0: yeah, why don't we dive into that history a little bit? Because I think that the, okay. I think that the history of the medlar tree is especially notable. And I was reading, I learned, I was reading the first chapter of your book all about it, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of things I learned.
1: I'm very grateful to um, a lot of uh, much more eminent um, scientists and researchers than I am, who during the course of the 20th century managed to piece together what feels like a credible. History for the medlar. The first really important point being that you need to sort of travel back through time about 3,000 years to that bit of geography that sits somewhere between the northwest coast of Iran and Turkey. So we're thinking the area of Azerbaijan, Iran, Turkey, around the Balkans, a little bit north of the Fertile Crescent, which was one of the first seats of agriculture. And in the wild form, the medlar probably grew as a bushy, thorny tree and would have had really quite small fruits. So my first sort of question is always, well, why why on earth did humans take any interest in medlars? Small, brown, acorn-sized, just to give you a bit bit of context, thorny and impenetrable. What was it that humans discovered? And I do strongly wonder whether the medicinal Um, uses of medlar which are still taken advantage of today certainly in the sort of the balkan countries i believe the medicinal properties of the medlar may have been particularly useful for humans there was a time it's hard to think about this in the 21st century but there was a time when getting some kind of tummy upset and developing diarrhea had the potential to be fatal to a human But we know from Anglo-Saxon texts, certainly, that have been revealed here in Britain, that producing or making up a tincture or a liquid from the hard medlar that has been boiled produced something that had the power to help dry up this loose tummy. One of the downsides of of diarrhoea is that you can very quickly lose interest in taking any food or liquid on board. So you can actually die of dehydration. So the medlar would have had a very distinct use as a sort of nutraceutical, as a sort of form of medication at that time. If the opposite scenario were to arise, if you had access to the very soft, squishy brown medlars in the winter months, of course, or if you'd found a way of keeping them safe and usable, the levels of sorbitol that are present in the ripe, soft, sweet medlar um, would have the power to help loosen a constipated tummy. It's really hard to be categoric about this stuff. And that's one of the things that appeals to me about the medlar because I think they're very delicious to eat as a fruit. The colour is off-putting, but doesn't sort of signal danger or alarm. But it's possible that the original form of interest that humans took in it, it, was its medicinal usefulness. And that's something you can't knock. And I believe from other research that i did in the writing of the book that something like 80% of the population still rely to a greater or lesser extent on what we might call folk medicine and that's where you know something like the medler would definitely fit. So 3,000 years ago we have an undomesticated thorny bush producing little tiny brown fruits, quite prolific and humans discover that they have a use and by the time we get to about 2,000 years ago, the story has moved on. The medlar has been domesticated in the sense that people have learned from the ancient Greeks how to graft them and to control the size and the appearance of the medlar, and possibly even increase the size of the fruit. I, d- I don't know whether that's true or not. And sometime between 50 years into what we call the modern period, CE or AD, the Romans decided that they needed to have the meddler in their lives here in Britain. So there was a sort of gradual uh, migration over those that sort of period of about a thousand years from the shores of the Caspian Sea, by hook or by crook, with the help of animals and humans, and probably, you know, later the Romans moving across Europe, the medlar found its way to Britain. We don't have any evidence that the Romans cultivated them when they were here, but we do know that they ate them because there are some archaeobotanical remains that were found on a Roman site in Hampshire, which is sort of southwest of London, a bit north of Southampton. Those stones were re examined not so long ago, actually, in about 2012, by an archaeobotanist called Lisa Lodwick, and she confirmed that they were indeed medlar stones containing medlar seeds. And they they were the only two examples of something that could be confirmed to be Roman that have been found to date here in Britain. So this is a fruit rather like the quince and the apple and the pear, all of which have their botanical origins in roughly the region I was talking about earlier, that sort of area just sort of north of the Fertile Crescent. All of these fruits gradually made their way to Britain. And then much later, the meddler will have found its way across the Atlantic to America and Canada. That was probably more likely the responsibility of humans. Um, I can't think of many animals that would have been able to achieve that. But I'd be interested to know whether there's any research that's been done in America about the origins of the medlar arriving on your continent.
0: If there is, I'm not aware of it. But
1: um... Well, I've looked quite hard as well. So <laughs> I don't have anything to add, I'm afraid, Michael. But I think if the thinking is right that these originated where they did, human agency would have been required to get the fruit to the Americas. And it, in the same way, it would have been required human agency would have been required to get them down to Australia. I think there we can blame the convict ships that took badly behaved people from Britain down to Tasmania and the southern part of Australia, where medlow trees thrive and do very well. So we have you know <laughs> we have got a distributed uh, population, a bit of a small population, but distributed all the same. But the time in between, so, you know, the Romans ate them, we know that. They were probably at their most popular here in Britain around the time of Henry VIII. So we're talking the middle of the 16th century, so the 1500s. I think he was on the throne, certainly in the 1520s, 30s and 40s. And one of his most famous homes, Hampton Court Palace, had a beautiful orchard laid out and his gardener, John Chapman, was uh, commanded to uh, include medlar trees in the planting. But as we roll forwards through history, we have evidence that probably Queen Victoria ate medlars. They were available to buy at Covent Garden Fruit Market at Christmas time. And they were still very much in circulation in the winter months up to and just after the First World War. But of course, the 20th century was a time of remarkable advances and changes in so many parts of life, whether it was the way households were organised and run, whether it was the surge in possibilities for international trade of all sorts of things, including fruit and vegetables and other food products. Um, refrigeration became something that was available in the home and I can remember as a teenager in the 1970s you know all the excitement when a a deep freeze um, as it was called or a chest freezer was acquired by my family to help my mother feed her family of six to reduce the number of shopping trips certainly so a lot has changed and at the same time our appetite for um convenience and our appetite for year round availability of certain foods including fruits has spun i would say completely out of control so there isn't a day of the year in the uk where you can't buy a strawberry whether you want to eat that strawberry is another matter but all kinds of things are constantly available to buy because they've been grown in kenya or peru or israel or south africa and they rock up to our supermarkets, the concept of eating seasonally and being aware of the seasons through our diet has also also shifted. So I think the years following the First World War through to the early part of the current century marked a steep, steep decline in awareness of the meddler. And even individuals, you know, who considered themselves more than half interested in what they were eating I include myself in that, had no idea that this this fruit existed. And we're in a situation now, I think, where curiosity um, and interest in eating more seasonally and how people, how food producers are producing food, um, how farmers are growing it, is playing in a very helpful way into the hands of the meddler enthusiast. I wouldn't necessarily expect us to quickly reach a situation where every household in the country has a dish of medlars on the table at Christmas but I think that over time it will become something that is less less unusual.
0: It's funny that you say Christmas because I do think they are especially suited for the holidays and mm. the only time that I've exposed my family to medlar was on a Christmas Eve celebration where I brought a little bowl harvesting uh-huh. from a breaded giant tree, and you know they were popular. I was people liked them. Yeah. People who are kind of you know a little hesitant to try things they don't know, and and it was a hit. Mm,
1: yeah, I know, and uh, it's interesting, isn't it? So for, again, for for listeners who haven't had the privilege of being invited to one of your Christmas Eve dinners with your breaded giant fruit <laughs> medlars when they're fully ripe. Um, and ready to eat as a table fruit aside from the color which I've already talked about the flavor profile again this is very much my palate but I've been very much to hear what you would say Michael is of a very slightly spicy citrusy apple sauce with a definite sweetness but not so much sweetness that it is deadening in the mouth there's a, there are lots of layers of flavour so you get an initial hit of sweetness and the spicy notes come through quite fast and then at the end almost as you're swallowing the fruit this sort of citrusy reward I think becomes very obvious and there are one or two cultivars I mean the Iranian which is my number one top favourite fruit to eat as a table fruit in of the Medler family has the, the sweet spiciness the citrus note, very, very distinctly defined. And I think for me, that makes it the most delicious. I never cook with it. It's the one that I treasure. And I have about six kilos of them sitting in my deep freeze, which I have carefully looked off um, freezing them uh, on wax paper and then bagging them up when they're rock hard. But the common Dutch is an interesting meddler. It has a flavor of honeydew melon. So nothing appley and nothing particularly citrusy there. There's another one, which is not the Breder giant, but the Breder, which incidentally is a real place in the Netherlands, in case anybody's interested. And that has distinct notes of cinnamon and satsuma, which is those lovely little sort of very peelable oranges that we get a lot at Christmas time. Um, and you've got... Other things in between, you get caramel notes from some of these meddlers with less citrus. And the one that's probably the best all-rounder for both cooking and for eating fresh would probably be the Nottingham, which I think is one of the reasons why it's uh, the cultivar has become most readily available here in the UK.
0: So, uh, I mean, I would describe the flavour at least, and, and I, could, I have to say I've only had Breda Giant. My Medlar Mm -hmm. experience is limited to that one cultivar. Mm -hmm. I always say uh, brown cinnamon sugar applesauce is what it is.
1: Okay, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. They're very attractive. And when you put a fruit like that with a really beautifully produced cheese, and I'm talking maybe a hard cheese that is like a cheddar style cheese or, or a soft brie style cheese, or even a beautiful blue cheese that is like a Stilton or a rockfall. the contrast flavours and textures that you can enjoy from your cheese board with some medlar fruit sitting in their own bowl is really quite astonishing. And it never ceases to amaze me just how this simple brown fruit can bring so much out of different sorts of cheese.
0: So, Jane, could we... Take maybe a a half step back and talk Mm -hmm. about medlar in the sort of orcharding context. Um, Yeah. You know, you're one of two maybe people who actually have a sizable orchard in the UK. So I think, I think you're well equipped to sort of describe, um, (laughs) you know. Okay. People want to know growing conditions or how shade tolerant the trees are or what kind of soil and cultivation tips, pruning, that kind of of stuff, the nitty gritty.
1: Right. Well, this is an easy tree to grow. Meadow trees are incredibly forgiving. All they ask of their owner is to have neutral to slightly acid. They like some sun, but they don't need to have sun all day. They prefer... Sheltered situations. So, if you are lucky enough to live on the seacoast, you'd need to find sheltered on your plot to accommodate a medlar tree. They don't like salty air. They will get themselves going in terms of wanting to push out flowers within a couple of years of being planted. You can get your fruit tree nursery to supply you with a one or two year old grafted tree. Hawthorn is a very popular rooting stock and is incredibly durable and they are hardy down to very very low temperatures and they cope with very high temperatures we had a 50 degree centigrade swing temperature wise here a couple of years ago in a 12 month period and i didn't lose a single tree so i i feel that we have tested the medlar quite well there so once you've got your plant dig a square rather than a round planting hole Settle your your tree into its space. Aim to get the root point more or less level with the soil once it's been planted. But you want to help it along with some compost or some leaf mold, maybe some mycorrhizae boosting powder, a good bucket of water, and also give it some support in the form of a, a stake, a tree support stake. Once you've got your young tree into the ground, You can then look forward to it pushing out some growth in that first spring and you can rub off any growth that starts to appear below the level at which you would like the crown of the tree to form i'm talking now about a tree that eventually will be a half standard or have the look of maybe a bit like like a sort of chaotic lollipop so a sort of vertical trunk with with a crown on the top if you've chosen a multi-stem tree then obviously the scenario is slightly different, but you can still rub some of the lowest buds, uh, leaf buds off. You might want to protect the young stems if you've got wild deer or rabbits, both of those species like young fruit trees to nibble on. And you can lose a tree if, as we have, you get wild deer coming and munching all the way around. But having got them into the ground, Don't let them dry out if you have a prolonged dry spell. But basically, they don't need an awful lot doing to them. They do tend to look after themselves. And in terms of pruning, really, until you've got uh, quite a canopy or a crown on the tree, you don't need to do very much at all. If you get some severe branch crossing uh, internally, you might want to deal with that but you don't need to create you know, a leading vertical stem or anything of that sort. The medlar really will take responsibility for its own shape and will grow quite quickly. So I'm just thinking of my trees that are chronologically 10 years old, and they are standing probably about between eight and 10 feet high and producing several kilos of fruit. Some of them will have produced as much as eight or 10 kilos of fruit in the last couple of years each year. So, yeah, sheltered, sunny, neutral to slightly acid soil. Don't let them dry out and don't let them try and fruit too young. So although they will push out flowers in their first couple of years, by all means, let them flower because they are pretty. But don't let the fruit set. So after they finish flowering, go and do the unkind thing and pinch out what's left of the flowers and let the tree do some serious work under the soil
0: jane could we cover the harvest and the the bledding process this is something that <laughs> confuses me a little bit because the a giant that we have at my school in the campus arboretum the fruits will blet right on the tree and it seems like the longer i wait and harvest them right off the tree the better they are they are I, like here, it's like, you know, in if, if I'm harvesting them in December, there's only a few fruits on the tree that are blooded. And really, it's more like a January kind of thing.
1: Gosh, that's really interesting. That is, um, that's a late example. I, yeah. I didn't realize it went that late.
0: A lot of the stuff I've read online or, in, you know, the limited texts that are available talk about sort of October to December. <laughs> And I think that's just based off of the climate of where those texts are written, including yours, because, you know, our climates are so different from one another
1: um, from
0: Massachusetts to the UK. And if Uh I pick Medlar in November, often Uh what happens is I end up with these fruits that just kind of turn rock hard. They don't properly blet and Mm. they they don't do anything. I started to hold off and just say, okay, wait, let's wait till next month and see what happens. And then yeah. the, the whole thing goes down a lot easier.
1: That's really, that's a really interesting example that you've given. And you're very fortunate because you only have one tree to watch and you can take advantage of the fruit at its best moment for picking because you're able to observe it. I too have had problems with one or two cultivars, which I think, on reflection, I have also picked a little bit too early. And I have found that the bletting has been frustrating and not entirely successful, leading to, you know, hard, black, unusable fruit, which is very, very frustrating indeed. One does need to observe quite closely these medlar fruits as they get close to the theoretical harvest moment. And if you're going to, as I do, try to get the fruit off the trees when they are fully grown and I can tell that they're fully grown because they will fall to the ground of their own accord. They're still hard. I know that the signals will have been passed into the fruit that they need to start letting because there's going to be no more growth, which is why the fruit has liberated itself from the tree and fallen to the ground. And that process needs to happen in as natural an environment as I can create. I'm lucky enough to have a, a sort of shed type thing on the side of the house and I can leave the windows and the door open. So effectively, it's an external environment, but I've got the fruit in ventilated trays that I can stack, and they will blet quite happily. To a greater or lesser extent, they will blet like that. The theory that you need to have a frost before the bletting process begins has been disproved in all the warm autumns that we've had here in the uk certainly since i started on this back in 2016 and it's the warm autumns that produce bletting on the tree now as somebody who's growing the fruit commercially and needs to gather in you know hundreds and hundreds of kilograms of these fruits picking soft medlars off the tree is incredibly difficult if you've got a lot of it to pick it's actually much more efficient to get the fruit off the tree just before it starts to soften. It's quick. The bletting will happen very quickly as well. It's much more efficient because I can get the fruit in good condition off the trees. When the fruit is soft on the trees and you try to pick it, it can tear quite easily and I have to keep it separate from the hard fruit. You'll quite often find both things going on on the tree at the same time. Interestingly, In autumn 23, we had very, very little bletting on the tree. Autumn 22, which followed a very hot summer, we had a very hot October. I mean, T-shirts, weather at the end of October. And I had an enormous amount of fruit that was bletting on the tree. So when the harvest team was working, we had to separate the hard from the soft. And I would either immediately cook the soft ones to make into jelly, or I would bag them immediately and freeze them for later use. All I would say about meddlers in this context is that they do seem to make the rules up year by year. And the theory, you know, that they must be subjected to a frost before they blet has been disproved in these warm autumns. I've had, I think, three examples of warm autumns since I started this and started really paying attention to to, to what they do and they don't do. So it's the warm autumns that seem to provoke bletting on the tree, the one exception being the Iranian meddler, which is very well behaved, very predictable, and always does what it says it's going to do, which is bletting on the tree, and they're usually all done by the middle of November, and they're perfect, whatever the weather's doing. So there are some genetic differences between the cultivars that I think are controlling this process, It's just, you know, one of those additional layers of mystery that we have to live with. I find myself approaching harvest with sort of, I can only put it as sort of an open mind every year. I start, you know, watching quite closely from the fourth week of October, shaking the tree, seeing what how easily the fruit is falling to the ground. And that really is, in the end, for me, the best indicator of readiness for picking this fruit. I would love a world in which I had one medlar tree only to look after, and I could do what you do, which is to keep the fruit on the tree into January. I think that would be a lovely thing, but I I don't think that's going to be my story.
0: That's interesting. I've always wondered what the argument for taking the hard fruits off is, because
1: mm-hmm.
0: for me it just seems so easy to just pick it off and it's ready to eat, and you can just <laughs> exactly. It is, right
1: there. which is what I do with the Iranians, Michael. I stand there and I, I have that one tree experience. The other thing I would say is, and, and there are recipes from Turkey that appeal to the pickets of the hard fruit, and that is the, you know, the hard meddler has got a lot of very interesting uh, properties in terms of polyphenols and tannins and vitamins and so forth. Slightly different profile to the fully soft bletted medlar the turks you know remember that turkey is one of the original homelands of the medlar they probably understand medlars better than any other nation on the planet and they have got some lovely recipes for making medlar pickles medlar vinegar and a a sort of slightly fizzy drink that you might regard as being slightly like a cider and all of those recipes require the rock hard fruit And they also have a wonderful recipe for making a medlar preserve using the hard fruit, which comes out a beautiful sort of apricot jam color and has all the tannic um, astringency, as well as some sweetness. And it sounds sort of slightly odd, but I tell you, it is the most delicious thing to have with some Greek yogurt or some cream cheese. It's absolutely amazing. So there are culinary reasons for wanting to harvest medlars in the rock-hard form as well. And it's all down to the Turkish population who, just to give you an idea, I think from the orchards in Anatolia, they gather about 4,000 metric tons. It's a vast number. It's a lot. I know what one metric ton looks like, which would be like sort of 2,000 pounds in weight. And um, they produce 4,000 times that, which is a completely terrifying quantity. And they sell them as a fruit in the in the hard as well as in the soft form in the markets there.
0: Just last night, I was kind of trying to do a little bit of research and preparation for this interview. And uh-huh. I, stumbled, I stumbled into a weird corner of the Internet where they're... Um, <laughs> In Azerbaijan, I I was really kind of blown away. In Azerbaijan, there's these different small family farms. They've created like ASMR homesteading channels where Uh the medlar was featured on several different videos. And, you know, there's this one that's like the family harvesting the medlar off of all their trees in in the orchard they have, which blew me away by the fact of how many, the sheer quantity of medlar... And then, Mm. you know, the whole process of it being cooked down and basically, they're they're basically canning it, like they're making preserves. And the process involved having to first smush all the medlar together in this massive pan and then push it through a very fine sieve and then (laughs) do that a a second time and slow cook. Mm -hmm. it. It looks like it was a full day affair.
1: Oh, yeah. You've touched on one of the other reasons that meddlers have fallen out of favor. This is labor intensive, you know, and people don't have the time. Lots of people, not everybody, but lots of people don't have the time. But you hit on a brilliant illustration of, you know, a different culture where time is made to do this because it's regarded as an important part of the diet.
0: And I have to say the final product, you know, it really looked worth it. It was Mm the medlar I guess I don't know if I would call it it's not medlar jelly and it wasn't really medlar jam but it was medlar something and it looked absolutely delicious <laughs> could we talk about the products a little bit more and the products that yeah. you from medlar
1: well in the early days when I was when I didn't know anything about anything in the early days of Eastgate Larder, I made medlar fruit cheese which is a set puree of the pulp of the fruit and it could be that it's that the lovely family in Azerbaijan were making so it's a delicious sort of almost sort of chestnut brown color and it is sweet and it's got a slightly grainy texture I discovered through giving tastings at a farmer's market that people who dislike pears dislike medlar cheese because they don't like that gritty grainy sensation in their mouths Medlar jelly is made in a slightly different way so you in in both processes you have to start by simmering the fruit but to make medlar jelly you simmer the fruit in more water than you would otherwise and you have to pass the fruit the entire contents of the pan through a sieve and then a jelly bag to separate out the liquid which you know is very fragrant but otherwise unremarkable and at that point you've got a couple of options. You could put some of that stock or juice from the boiling process into a shallow pan and over a low heat and keep an eye on it for an hour or so. And you would reduce it down to a syrup, which you could use in a variety of contexts. Uh, you could use it as a honey substitute, as a molasses substitute. You could put it on yogurt or porridge or cake or use it to make a fun, slightly fruity, flavoured cocktail with some fizzy wine. All sorts of things you could do. And you'd also use that same stock with a quantity of sugar and some lemon juice to produce medlar jelly, which is, from a business point of view, for me, my absolute best seller. People understand what a fruit jelly is in a jar in this country. Uh, They're used to eating red currant jellies and... Um, mulberry jelly and quince jelly they appreciate the opportunity to have something sweet on the plate alongside something savory whether it's cheese or meat or charcuterie or pate or whatever Uh, there I mean there are loads of other things that one can do with medlars. the other thing that I make for the business now I stopped making the medlar cheese because it's a very slow process the business of dehydrating this liquid pulp with some sugar to produce some medlar cheese can take longer than it takes to make medlar jelly, which I can make in bigger quantities. So after a few years, I dropped the medlar cheese. But I do make a spicy medlar chutney. And the recipe, I should say, the recipes for all of the things I'm talking about are given in the book, which is easy to buy in America because it's distributed there. So if you want to buy a copy of the book, go to your nearest bookstore uh, or your nearest online book retailer and place your order, and the distributors will be able to supply it to you via your chosen book retailer. What else? I mean, crikey! One can make beer with medlars. One can make wine with medlars. You can flavour spirits with medlars. Uh, you don't need much in the way of added sugar if you're putting medlars into spirits. But you do need to make sure that the medlars are not quite fully blotted when you do this, because they will spoil in the spirits and make the spirits look a little bit cloudy so you do need to be a little bit careful but I do write about this in the book they make most fantastic tarts they make wonderful cakes one of our favorite winter puddings in this house is the sticky medlar toffee the recipe for that it's not my recipe but the recipe for that is in the book gosh yes lots of possibilities but in terms of the sort of total you know ease and versatility medlar jelly remains a very very popular thing for to make at home, as well as for people to buy in their local cheesemonger or their you know nearest delicatessen. But time working with meddlers in the kitchen does require a lot of sieves and jelly bags and patience and a big sink in which to do all the washing up. <laughs> it's you know it is. Well, for me, it can feel like a real labour of love. If you're working with a small quantity, I know that um, Scott Farm in the season, they do sell, uh, they sell meddlers by mail order because my sister who lives near Boston bought herself some. And I think she bought five or 10 pounds in weight. And she said it was really fun, you know, making a little bit of medlar jelly, making a little bit of medlar cheese and making a little bit of meddler syrup. You know, she felt that she'd had... A good opportunity to play around with some different recipes out of the book and didn't feel in the slightest bit overwhelmed by them. And the other thing, of course, is eat them as a table fruit. You know, everybody gets understandably very focused on how what you can turn meddlers into, but actually they are pretty lovely, as you were saying a minute ago, Michael, served, you know, when they're beautifully ripe in a bowl alongside a cheese. Or charcuterie board if you're a meat eater.
0: From your recipes section, there was two two recipes that really stood out to me. One of them was your spicy medlar chutney, but the other one that was really simple was just the roasted medlars. And I was <laughs> yes. I was wondering, like, so so you roast and uh, you know ingredients are simple: the medlars, some butter, sugar, and a yeah. Stick, but then when after roasting them like let's say you roast them blooded or non-blooded and then when they're done roasting are you just spooning out from the skin yes
1: it's an opportunity to probably wait until they're not quite roasting hot out of the oven but I think certainly very dainty teaspoons are required to eat them Um, and there may be some finger action required as well because You know, they are, you know, from your own experience, they're not the largest fruits and they each contain five stones with seeds inside them. Although the skins are perfectly safe to eat, you might not want to eat them. So, yes, you want to go in through the top, the calyx end and lift that off and then rootle around inside the fruit. And you'll probably find most mouthfuls that you take on your spoon will include one of the little stony things that I've talked about. No harm is done if you swallow one, but you don't want to swallow too many of them because they have arsenic in them.
0: I did not know that. I have <laughs> swallowed uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, medlar seeds before. I did not know that. Container.
1: You're looking very well on it. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the um, the cider side of things, i think that the hard meddler is a better one to consider using than the sweet soft because you're not going to get enough interest at a sort of mouth level i think from the sweet fruit i think it's better to use the hard fruit with some of the different polyphenol and sort of tannic elements and in terms of beer i know two brewers who make beautiful meddler beer in two completely different ways one of them is in tasmania and he makes his sort of beer and then he introduces the meddlers into the barrel and leaves them to um, make friends with one another over about a 12 to 18 month period and then the brewer i know here in norfolk who makes meddler beer which is delicious in a completely different way makes a sort of more of a bitter darker brown beer not as dark as guinness but you know mid-brown chestnut brown and he will just add the meddlers to the last sort of five minutes of the the brewing process in the mash tun in the big vat when the heat is on and i know that that produces an astonishing slightly toffee-ish appley profile to the bitter so it's a very interesting beer to drink, but it's also very punchy in the alcohol. Both versions that I've described produce a a, a drink that is about seven or eight percent alcohol by volume, which is quite punchy for a beer.
0: Very interesting. It seems like this fruit is just highly undervalued. Like, is there anything really preventing it from being grown commercially in the U.S.? Are there major pests or diseases?
1: Um, the only thing I know that is watched for in some situations is the risk of picking up fire blight and that that is a function as i understand it i don't have any experience this because i don't get blight on my medler trees Um, but it's to do with the circulation of the air in the growing situation so there might be certain geographies that make the appearance of of fire blight more likely rather than less likely but i don't see there are not a lot of pests at all that like to have a go at medlar trees pigeons are a problem not because they you know eat the fruit it's because they strip the flesh off the leaves and then you end up with a tree without enough leaf power to photosynthesize and support a good crop of fruit so that's the reason that's a problem in terms of other things they are not tricky as I said right at the outset they're easy they're not tricky in terms of being a target for rusts or fungal pathogens or anything like that you might occasionally get a little clump of a sort of fruit tree moth it's sort of known as coddling moth over here and it's very distinctive in the sense that it can look like a dense sort of 3d sticky mass of tiny black specks And it might affect a few inches of a particular branch. And if I've I've seen it about four times here in all the years that I've been doing this on all the trees that I've got. And I just get the secateurs out and cut off the offending bit and burn it or throw it away. I don't put it on the compost heap, obviously. So, no, I mean, meddlers are remarkable because they are relatively fuss free. I think good airflow is always important for fruit trees because you also want the pollinators to you know be attracted in and have the chance to do the work that they need to do but no i mean i can't i can't see any reason why well i mean look at the guys at the scott farm they effectively have a commercial heirloom fruit orchard business and they include within that you know a reasonable number of medlar trees
0: somewhere a while back i found that somebody had said that medlar may be a more climate smart tree crop for the future as compared to you know the standard, more popular varieties of apples and pears. Mm. Um, but in, here in the Northeast, we're gonna, in New England, the rate of the climate, what climate change looks like for us is a lot more rain and it's really wet, humid summers that unfortunately will probably mean a lot more fire blight too, so.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And in fact, when I was chatting with Erin, at Scott Farm last September. That, I think, is what she was concerned about, you know, the way the air circulating through the orchard area, which is, as you say, quite rightly, very different to what we have over here. What I have found so far, and I I don't have decades of experience, as I've said, but what I would observe is that even quite young trees with still quite shallow roots at development, seem to be able to cope with the weather that we have thrown at the trees. And that includes, you know, a 40 degree centigrade summer a couple of years ago, certainly down to minus 10 overnight on more than one occasion. Traditionally, this part of Britain is relatively dry, although this winter, I think we've managed to disprove that. We've had a lot of rain they don't like standing in water by any means so flooding in the orchard would be a real concern but actually our ground is so free draining that that isn't something that i anticipate being a problem but i think in a sort of regenerative agroforestry scenario medlars definitely have their place and increasingly that approach to the cultivation of grain crops and other crops is gathering certainly a lot of followers here in the UK. I could imagine that in suitable parts of New England that this is an approach that could very well and you know the medlar is a perfect mid-size fruit tree to have growing you know maybe behind some fruit bushes you know black currant and the other thing I'd say for, for people who are keen to add one to their yard, you can have a single meddler, as you will know yourself from what you see of the of Giant at Amherst. A single meddler will produce a crop. You know, they don't need to have a mate in order to for fertilization to occur.
0: And that one tree that you have will produce a heavy crop of fruit too.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can think of many examples I know of single medlars. They are able, you know, once they've been pollinated, the fruit will set and will then develop and mature and be eminently usable.
0: So, Jane, I think we've uh, really covered the history of the medlar cultivation. We've, We've really done quite a deep dive today. Where can people keep up with your work? And can people buy the book Medlar's Growing and Cooking directly from you or do they just have to go to their local bookstore?
1: Well, if I make one assumption, which is that you will have listeners all over the world, certainly the book is not difficult to track down. Looking at it more geographically, in the US there is distribution of the book. So going into your local bookstore or wherever you like to buy your books, You should be able to place an order if they aren't carrying it in the bookstore. Here in Europe, it is very easy to lay your hands on uh, either through your local independent bookshop or your online retailer of choice. And there are various online companies now that will effectively support independent bookshops. There are plenty of people I know who are reluctant to give more money to Amazon. Let's be clear about that. That is a way of getting hold of it, but there are other ways. I think there's a site, is it bookshop.org? Australia and New Zealand are a bit harder. There isn't any actual distribution into those countries, but there are ways that an individual can place in order to get hold of a copy. And if all else fails, people are very welcome to contact me via my website, which is eastgatelarder.co.uk. And that is also my handle on Instagram, Eastgate Larder. And that's where I do most of my social media. Eastgate Larder is very visible on Instagram. It certainly was during the autumn. I have been somewhat quieter the last few weeks because there isn't a great deal going on with the treats and the fruit at the moment. So yeah, the website eastgatelarder.co.uk and Instagram escapeLadder will find me. And I do, you know, if people want to direct message me or ask questions, I do my best to respond quickly to inquiries and will continue to do so.
0: And if anyone is headed to the UK anytime soon... And they visit the
1: orchard? Of course they can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, let me know um, if, when you're coming, what you might like to do, and if it, if I'm around, and if it's possible, then we can make it happen.
0: Lovely. I haven't been to the UK, so maybe that'll
1: have to change. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it would be delightful to welcome you here. Thank you so much for all your great questions and your and your own interest, uh, Michael. I hear a lot of enthusiasm on your part.
0: I mean, it's a great tree crop and I think it's highly undervalued. Jane, thank you so much. This has been lovely. To our listeners who stuck around for the whole episode, thank you. You make this podcast happen and we'll see you next time.